Right, it's official. You've given me cancer. Who's that? I mean, what? Cancer, the big C, the tumescent tumor, the cells that will not die. I have it. You've given it to me. And how did I do that? I might remind you I am in China. Fire the eyes, the gateway to the soul, the oculus. That's how you did it, you magnificent bastard. I see. Well, you see. We all see? We all see for I seem? Anyway, I'm still not getting it. Reading! Reading, man, reading! I've told you a million times I don't read because it gives you cancer, and you've made me read two weeks in a row. It'll be three soon. What? We'll get onto that in a moment. So I gave you cancer by forcing you to read. Yes. And how has this cancer shown itself? What are the symptoms? Uh, tiredness, cantankerousness, an inability to sleep, not wanting to go to work, not wanting to get up in the morning, my eyesight is shocking. Uh, all signs of advanced reading-based cancer. Or, I'll put it to you, old age. Plus being a parent and too much Mountain Dew. D- but d- you, you take that back. I will not stand for that. How dare you slam the Dew? Apologies. I will refrain from talking about highly caffeinated drinks in future. Drinks which statistically are worse than smoking for your long-term health. You're suggesting my cancer is drink-based. Where do you think Mountain Dew comes from? Mountains, obviously. Yes, Josh. Mountains. Mountains of academic journal articles crushed by machines until such time liquefy, creating the perfect toxic brew. Good lord. Yes. Yes. You've been thinking more like... You've been drinking. Yeah, I did wonder how you're going to be in this sketch. The podcast's guide to the conspiracy, featuring Josh Addison and M. Dentis. No my hari mai and welcome to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy called Josh Edison Toko Inua Ko in Dentithia. Things are nice in Auckland. How's you high China? Still very hot. Still mm. very, very hot. And I've been for a bike ride today because I had perishable goods I had to pick up. Well, you got some exercise and that's what matters. It's true. I did. And I mm. do. I do matter. You're quite right. Yes. I matter. We all do. Uh mm. Unless we belong to certain white supremacist organisations, perhaps. Well, precisely. Mm. Yes, no, so um, it is it is Maori Language Week here in Aotearoa, and appropriately, sort of, we're talking yeah, about I stuff think... that's happening in New Zealand, but, but kind, of, kind of the opposite, because it's, it's yeah, people who would take a very dim view of Maori Language Week, I would, I would imagine. Yes, you would imagine correctly. The people we're talking mm. about are... Well, I mean, they're white nationalists, they're white supremacists, mm. they're segregationists. They don't want any of their Maori in their communities, despite the fact that they live in a place where Maori are indigenous. Mm. Yes. So we mentioned we mentioned a little while ago, I can't remember when this first came out, that there was um a what would you call it, a study, a case study of sorts where a an academic infiltrated essentially, the local white supremacist group Action Zealandia, and they have now published two papers about what their, about sort of extremist groups in general uh, using Action Zealandia as a case study, and we're going to talk about those papers today. Yes, we'll be looking at two papers. One is explaining the gap between online violence extremism and offline inaction among far-right groups, a study of Action Zealandia from 2019 to 21, which is my remit, whilst Josh is going to be looking at how online interaction radicalizes while group involvement restrains a case study of Action Zealandia from 2019 to 2021. Both by Chris Wilson and James Halpin. I'm not sure which of them is the one who infiltrated Action Zealandia, but it is. I believe it was James. James. They do, Mm. yes. So, as we will see, there's a lot of crossover between the two papers. They're they're, they're covering the same ground, just putting the emphasis on different points. I suppose we, we we should do things properly and, like, play a chime or a sting or some sort of soundboardy thing and then get into it properly. Indeed. Right, so I guess we we can skip over some of the some of the we, we can take it as read basically that they both start with kind of an introduction to the literature on online extremism um, and a bit of an intro to Action Zealandia, but we'll then get into it later. 
they also both go through the, the they have a section which I, I'm assuming is fairly standard for things like this on the ethical considerations and, and for case studies ethical... like this, yes, mm. yeah, you basically and... have to front first. We went through the right process to do these things. Now we'll need to talk about exactly what they did with respect to ethics approval here, because there's something very interesting about the kind of study they mm. did. But yes, I mean, basically they both they both start the same way. And that they have, as you say, a literature review. And then from those introductions, they pick out the things in the literature which they think is salient for their particular investigation. So the paper that I looked at, explaining the gap, they're basically interested in two rival theories, or at least not necessarily rival, two potentially competing or complementary theories about online versus offline extremism which is, one, violent rhetoric is cathartic, so it fulfills a psychological need. So these people get together and they talk about stuff and the violent rhetoric that they express in their online communities allows them to form bonds. It also allows them to release rage and anger, so it fulfills a psychological need. But then the rival theory is, and I'm quoting here from the paper, leaders of extremist groups often seek to avoid violence because it would be counterproductive to their goals of survival, recruitment, and establishing a mass white white nationalist movement. So they're going, well, look, on one level, you kind of need your group members to engage in rhetoric because it's cathartic and it brings people together. At the same time, if your members are seen to engage in violent rhetoric, it's counterproductive for the aims of the movement. So how does a group like Actionslandia square that circle? Mm. And so these are both theories to explain the gap between very extreme rhetoric online and yet, for the most part, a lack of What's such extreme action. Because yeah. that's the yeah. interesting thing about Actionslandia. If you study the rhetoric they engage in with their podcast, which we've talked about on this podcast in the past, we talked with Byron Clark, and you look at their Telegram messages, the things they did on Discord in the early days, their early Reddit threads, it's very violent, it's very misogynistic, it's very racist. But Actionslandia itself doesn't seem to have engaged in extremist action as a group. While some members may have done some terrible things, the group itself has tried to avoid engaging in violent action. They've always presented themselves as being a young man's health club, trying to make young men better through bodybuilding, cutting down trees and cleaning beaches. And so there is this kind of curious question here. Why are they so violent in their rhetoric and yet not particularly violent in their outward behaviour? Mm. So should we should we go through the papers one at a time or sort of I, mash yeah, them up maybe, as we see? Maybe. Maybe we should try going through one at a time. Okay. Both papers are fairly similar, so I will probably cut out some of the examples I would talk about because they actually appear in the second paper you're looking at. Mm. So I'll try to try to gloss through the paper as quickly as possible. But one thing which is common to both papers is their discussion of the methodology and the ethical considerations. As you point out, most papers of this type need to state that they got ethics approval to engage in a case study looking at actual human beings, whether or not you think that white nationalists actually qualify as actual human beings, which is, by the by, something I'm not entirely convinced of myself. But assuming that white nationalists could be human, if you're going to engage in research work on human beings, you need ethics approval. Due to things like, say, the unfortunate experiment or the Tagusky syphilis experiments in the United States we talked about in a previous episode, when you start experimenting on human beings, you need to make sure there are the right controls in there so you're not abusing those human beings. But one thing they note is that the author never outed themselves as engaging in a study of Actionslandia members to the members of Actionslandia. And this historically has been taken as a bad thing. If you're doing an anthropological or sociological study of a community, it is expected that the researcher will tell people, I'm engaging in a study of you, so that you're not 
you're not borrowing on people's time. You're not misleading people with respect to a whole bunch of things. You're being honest and open with them. The problem with studying extremists is that, A, if you out yourself as a researcher, they're probably going to talk to you differently than actually how they would normally interact. And B, at the very least, they're probably going to troll you. Or at the very most, they're probably going to engage in fairly deleterious harm to your person. So they note in their ethical considerations sections in both papers that they didn't out themselves as researchers whilst engaging in the study. And this is now an accepted way of studying extremist groups, given those problems of both they'll behave differently if they think they're being investigated, so they'll probably downplay their rhetoric, and B, there is a serious chance of harm to the researcher if they out themselves whilst doing that research as well. Yes, so they... I mean, uh, the issue of consent, I guess, comes in a lot when it's when we're talking about ethical considerations. And as they sort of say, getting consent wasn't really going to be possible without completely harming the integrity of the study. Um, so they, they were given ethical approval. Uh, one of the conditions was that they make sure. So all, we, we, anytime they talk about any particular members of Action Zealandia, it's always just member A or member B. Everything's anonymized, and so um, the fact that they that the uh, people involved remain anonymous in these papers, I think, was was uh, a condition on um, them getting ethical approval for the study. But ethical approval they did get. And so they, they, they commenced these, was it 18 months undercover? Yes, yeah, one, mm. one, one and a half years. One thing which is interesting, and I know I, I say a lot of things interesting, but I maintain this thing lots of things is are interesting. interesting. One thing which is interesting is that the author admits that to get into Action Zealandia, they had to agree with several white nationalist statements as part of an interview process. So there was some degree of deception going in. To get in, they had to act and appear to be a white nationalist. Also, the author notes, and I'm quoting here, the participant author was aware of his positionality within the group and the potential to influence the discussion or activities of the group. To avoid this, he followed and observed the group rather than proposing activities or topics of discussion himself. So there was also the awareness that you could engage in a bit of entrapment here by infiltrating the group and go, oh, so uh, there are certain races you don't like. Would you like to speak into my lapel and tell me exactly what you think of those people? Or, oh, there's a dairy down the road with an ethnic person in it. Why don't we just uh, wander down there and cause some trouble? The author was aware that that kind of activity, that kind of entrapment would contaminate the work. And so he went out of his way to ensure he was always observing and never influencing, or at least trying to minimise his footsteps within the organisation. Mm. And I thought one interesting point, they say the author did not give his real name, like we, when being interviewed for Johnny Group, did not give his real name, although this aligned with group practice, no members used real names. So yeah, yeah, and actually we'll be talking about that in the bonus episode to a certain extent, because one of the members whose pseudonym is within the group Zane may well be running as councillor for a council. I mean, we talked about this last week in the bonus episode. There's more to say this week as well. Mm, stay tuned. So your paper then, once once they've got through this preamble, where do they where do they take it? Well, in the section entitled Violent Rhetoric and the Avoidance of Extremist Violence, the disjuncture between violent online rhetoric and offline action, and as a philosopher, I'd say, really appreciate these nice long section titles here. These people could have an, an absolute time doing philosophy. They note that normally we take it that people say more extreme things online than they would ever express in person. I've got a few quotes here. The threshold for expressing moral outrage and, by extension, hate, anger, prejudice, and contempt is much lower than it is, than it is offline. So people are more inclined to engage in outrageous speech acts in online communities than they are when they're talking with people face-to-face. 
The business model of much social media and the nature of online interaction encourages users to choose extreme statements and positions over more moderate and nuanced views. The quest for shares, likes, and engagement provides an almost habitual or addictive incentive to move to the poles of a particular debate. So the fact that social media is about upvoting or downvoting comments, liking or retweeting or quote tweeting means that people end up saying extreme things with respect to their social media use, which once again may not reflect how they would actually talk with people. So the members of extremist groups use violent talk, often in the confines of various free spaces, such as homes, parties, and online forums, as a key part of the process of building and sustaining a collective group identity. So once again, in their own private spaces, they engage in a kind of rhetoric which they just don't tend to engage with when they're talking with everyday normal people outside their groups. And they also note that most of the moral outrage, as you put moral outrage here in scare quotes, concerns the usual suspects. Does, was the term the usual suspects around before Casablanca? Or is that one of those things that was invented by movie language? Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. I don't know for sure. Sorry, in this context, the usual are the usual suspects the people who white supremacists blame stuff on? Or, yeah, or is yeah. it... Yeah, so, okay, right. We're not so, talking about... So, yeah. So, it's either, it's a, yeah, they're not blaming the film, the usual suspects. Because yeah, I wasn't sure if we were talking about the usual suspects in this context were Twitter and Facebook as being the people who enable this stuff, but yes. Although basically blaming any film that stars Kevin Spacey for the deleterious state of the world is probably a good idea these days. Well, these days, yes. Strange so, man, strange man. Still, so, so this is still speaking in general terms at this point, is it? Yes, and then they start moving on to the discussion of action Zelandia. So to quote... There's a large discrepancy between members' discourse online, that's the members of Actions Landia, and the way they act offline. Members regularly engage in explicit, violent, and abusive online discourse as a way of demonstrating their commitment to the white nationalist cause, policing the opinions of newcomers and members, and building a sense of collective identity. For most if not all members, this extremist interaction online is enough and reduces any impulse for offline violent action, indeed, much offline action at all. The group's leadership has also come to see mass casualty violence as counterproductive to its broader goals. The group has faced growing pressure from anti-fascist activists and police after a series of arrests and investigations, motivating the group's leaders to direct members to avoid discussing violence and to focus more on the construction of a white nationalist community. Yeah, there's talk, and we'll see this in the other paper as well, there's talk of how they, they, they want to move into a, more of a, I, I guess, a political goal they want to they want to influence society there's also i'm not sure if it comes up in this paper it was mentioned in the other one they have this idea that you see in in certain communities that um uh that 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 that, that a storms are brewing that trouble's coming there's going to be some sort of collapse of society or race war or something like that and so they don't need to they don't need to be doing anything too inflammatory. They, they, they can just sit back and wait for it to happen and be ready for when this when, when the day comes. Yes, and actually the other thing to note here, so people outside of Aotearoa may not be aware that the government of New Zealand has recently relaxed almost every single COVID-19 piece of legislation other than requiring masks in rest homes and medical establishments. Now, there's a group back home called Voices for Freedom, which emerged during the pandemic as a kind of resistance political movement against mass mandates, vaccine mandates, and the like. All those mandates have now been rescinded, and it now seems that Voices for Freedom, rather than disappearing, having seen their goal established, all the mandates are gone. And they're going, oh, no, 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 there are, there are other political activities we need to engage in. And so you see this kind of thing of, no, no, we uh, we just need to influence the politics. We we started off as a single issue movement, but we want to establish ourselves as a rival political force, which means we're going to have views outside of what established us in order to try and maintain our actual anti-government sentiment as a kind of political centre. 
political sense is the wrong term there, but you get what I mean. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so where are we at then? So we're well, still just now, talking about... now we have the incel hypothesis, because one thing which the author notes is he went to a whole bunch of the actual offline activities. And so they write, we propose an additional explanation for the avoidance of mass casualty violence by the group. We demonstrate that face-to-face -face interaction can have several effects which work to temper the power to violence. Online, people often appear heroic, edgy, and inspiring. Com but compared to their heroic online avatars, many young white nationalists are awkward, disorganized, and uninspiring in real life. Once users have met offline, their previous online anonymity often no longer applies, leading to a reduction in radicalism. At the same time, involvement in physical meetings and activities can act as a release valve for extremist sentiment. Such meetings not only provide a sense of friendship, a key reason for many joining the group, but participants also feel they are doing something for the cause. For many, we argue, this reduces any impulse for violence which might emerge from engagement in isolated online discourse. Meeting offline can act as an outlet after the pressure cooker environment of online extremism. Yes, and that, that quote also is pretty much word for word in the other paper. That was the one that was that, that was the money quote, I think, that was getting copied around a bit when um when this paper first went online, the whole uh, online people often appear more heroic, blah blah blah, compared to their heroic online avatars, many young white nationalists are awkward, disorganized, and uninspiring in real life. So there was a lot of oh, oh really? So these people who act like 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 gods, saviors of the white race online are actually a bit pathetic and useless in real life. Who would have thought? Uh, mm, of course, as we shall see, that, as as we will see, that, that they are nevertheless not without worrisome actions and and danger. But um, well, yeah, I mean, there, 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 there's one a of... bit, bit of Schadenfreude going around in this paper and the reactions to it. Now, one thing which is fascinating is the way in which the author talks about how the members self-identify. Because typically, if you look at the external comms coming out of groups like Actions Zelandia, Wagus Christi, the Dominion Movement, and the like, they say, oh, no, we're, we're not white nationalists. We're not white supremacists. We're definitely not Nazis. You know, we're, just, we're just people who are proud of our country and feel that we shouldn't be ashamed of being white. We're all about looking after beaches and being physically strong and oiling ourselves up like Spartans, but we're definitely not Nazis or fascists. No, no, that's a term that other people use for us. But as the authors note, members self-identify as Nazis, fascists, nationalists, and white supremacists. The leaders and members of Actions Landia see the group as part of a transnational white nationalist movement and model their dress, propaganda, and activities on those of the Nordic resistant movement, Patriot Front, and other groups. Members are heavily influenced by a wide range of foreign media, both mainstream as well as underground, and consume extreme white nationalist and neo-Nazi content. Readers, sorry, members read and discuss far-right texts such as the Turner Diaries, Siege, and... Mind come, and of course, this is all this is all internal. They're not presenting so, so outwardly. They're still, oh yes, we're oh yes, out, we're outwardly right. we're just we're just healthy young men doing healthy young men things mm. and being proud of being white. And but inwardly they go, discords and, yeah. yeah. I mean, inwardly they're going, what's wrong with being a Nazi? I mean, really, what's wrong with being a Nazi? Mm. To which mm. point I say, World War Two. World War Two, I think, is quite a quite a point in the uh, against them. Yeah. So this. Now, the paper that I read talks about a sort of change in rhetoric and, and, and especially a change in outward appearance. Do they go through that in this one as well? They do to a certain extent, but I think we'll leave that for okay. your, your particular paper. Otherwise, it's going to be, and we just, we just talked about that, and we just talked about that, and we just talked about that. So another thing which came out of this is it seems... Actions Zelandia is more interested in actually what's going on overseas and they are what's happening back home. And indeed, some of the scuttlebutt about Actions Zelandia is that the leadership is actually more interested in kind of getting in bed with European fascist movements because they may well think that's not really going to take off. 
in Aotearoa. It might not even take off in Australia, but we're seeing huge inroads of the far right and extreme right in Europe. So if they can get on board with those groups overseas, then that's going to be great for them. They also venerate the terror, so they refer to him as a saint. And at one stage, one of the members even talked about establishing independent cells of three to five men, each to attack a leftist building and people. The cells were to constitute a new group called Southern Order, and the organizer described the group not as a terrorist group, but as an aggressive underground group that would do street fighting and flash demos. It would have been a group who'd been publicly known as Nazis. I'd be looking for people who are willing to take a hit for their beliefs. Who cares if people know you're a Nazi? Hmm. Now, I think this member B is one who I will be mentioning as well. They they ended up expelling a couple of their members, kind of for this sort of stuff, I think, because they didn't want they didn't want to be drawing the wrong sort of attention. They didn't want didn't want heat. Well also the they would expel members if those members were under active investigation by the police. And then when they stopped being investigated by the police, would often let those members back in. Yes, and I think a good way to get yourself uh, investigated by the police is to start making noises about how we'd actually like to start attacking people and, and, and street fighting. But the upshot of this was due to the fact that people were not just talking about these activities behind closed doors, they were talking about them online in environments where other people could see them, which is precisely why Member B got reported for, to the police. He didn't say this in a closed chat room. He said this in an, in an open online space. That led to police investigating them. It led to the public identifying the group as being Nazis. And so in April of 2020, a code of conduct was drawn up for the members of Actionslandia, which included a specific section for chat room behavior. And among other restrictions, they wrote, threats of violence against anyone are never to be distributed. This is explicitly forbidden and result in inappropriate punishment. Distribution of propaganda from organizations such as Atomwaffen Division, the base, national action, etc., is banned inside and outside of Action Zelandia chat rooms. Mm. Uh, not because they disagree with them, but because they know that, that they it could get them into trouble and potentially yeah, it was harm it, it was yeah. bad, bad PR. Mm. So where do we is we in terms of so? Hang on, let, let me go back to the top. The, the the point that this paper is trying to prove is why there is a gap between the the extreme online behavior and the much milder offline behavior so where do they how how do they tie that all together well basically they point out that the leadership became increasingly aware that the online violent rhetoric couldn't be constrained to just chat rooms they had complete control over. This information was leaking. And it was presumably leaking because the author was probably not the only person who'd infiltrated the group. There's at least one other researcher who has infiltrated Actionslandia to the point where it's actually quite possible a sizable chunk of their membership are people who got into the group to try to expose them. So this information kept on coming out, which led to the leadership going, look, we can't have this kind of behavior going on in online spaces. And so because of that, it's led to the leadership basically shutting down violent rhetoric wherever they can see it in order to make the group at least seem somewhat palpable. And so they conclude we recognise that these dynamics are heavily influenced by the political and social context of New Zealand and may only apply to white nationalist groups in similar contexts elsewhere. So that's their caveat. What they've discovered about the actions of Action Zelandia and this disjunct between violent rhetoric within the group and an outward appearance which doesn't appear to be that violent at all may only occur in this one case study. Or if it occurs in Aotearoa, it might not be extensible to other polities or groups of similar size or action elsewhere. And I think that was missing in a lot of the initial media discourse. People were ignoring the fact that the authors are 
are very conditional about their findings. This is just one case study. We really can't generalize from that. We are also not arguing that actions of Landia and groups like it are of no threat to society. As we have shown, many members discuss and support the use of violence against minorities, women, or leftists, even if they do not commit it themselves. And while they may not engage in mass casualty terrorism, the presence of groups can have an influence on those prone to doing so. Group propaganda seeks to disseminate white nationalist ideas and hatred to a much wider audience, which includes individuals disposed to acting violently. In some cases, groups such as Actions Landia may even hope to provoke isolated individuals to mass casualty violence, particularly if it causes polarization and instability and a swell of support for nationalist organizations. Individuals on the periphery of the group who perceive themselves as ignored and excluded may also become frustrated and turn to extremist violence as a way of proving themselves. Because influential members of a group encourage restraint does not necessarily mean all members will conform, or that these norms will not change in the future. The group may later decide that the time is right for violence. The fact that strategic calculations are more important than moral objections to preventing violence allows for future change in this calculus. And increased factionalization within the group might drive extremist, extremist outbidding and violent. Mm. So... Yes, the fact that there is there is this clear gap between the online rhetoric and the offline actions isn't doesn't necessarily mean that everything's fine and that there is no danger here, which is more or less going to be the conclusion of the paper that I looked at. Um, so, so once again, the second paper is How Online Interaction Radicalizes While Group Involvement Restrains, a case study of actions in India from 2019 to 2021. So here they're less putting forward a theory um, to explain a, a commonly observed phenomenon. They're presenting what they've seen uh, and which, which, as they, they note, kind of goes against what people had thought um, in the past. So they say, this is the abstract for the paper, scholars have long seen radicalization as a predominantly group-based phenomenon occurring largely through real-world in-person interaction. By contrast, the inter by contrast, the internet is seen as playing an only a limited facilitating role in radicalizing people to violence. However, a series of attacks by far-right extremists over the past decade has demonstrated that this perspective is less accurate than it once was. Almost none of these terrorists were members of extremist groups and had only engaged with other extremists on the internet. In this article, we examine the relative importance of face-to-face -face group interaction and physically isolated internet-based radicalization in driving individuals towards extremist violence. We do so through a detailed case study of Action Zealandia, New Zealand's leading ideological white nationalist group. The study is based on 18 months of infiltration of the group by one of the authors from 2019 to 2021. When interacting online, members often adapt highly extremist personas, in some cases threatening mass violence. By contrast, face-to-face -face interaction and group membership push the group away from extremist violence. This was true to several factors, police pressure and lack of opportunity for the movement to grow, and the often uninspiring nature of offline interaction. So yes, so this is the thing they're going to say. This is, this, is, this is what they observed, that maybe in the past it would be people people meeting face-to-face -face and, and hyping each other up or, or inspiring each other to perform violent actions. But these days, the people who are performing the actions tend to be uh, isolated in quote-unquote real life but uh, and have, have all their interaction with like-minded people online, whereas when we see people who do actually get together in real life, there's, there's, uh, we, we can sort of see things happening that causes them to be much much less extreme. So after, once again, as we said, we have the, the this paper also has the, um, the, the, the discussion of the ethics and, and the ethical approval for the study and has a bit at the start about sort of the, the formation of Actions in Zealandia or what have you. Uh, and it starts also with the sort of literary review type thing where they talk about what people have said in a, a section called comparing online and offline interaction. So as I said in the intro, they say scholars have long assumed that the process of radicalization most readily occurs through face-to-face -face interaction with extremist groups. So this is this is sort of the conventional wisdom, 
But that's not what we're seeing so much these days. Um, they say, yet this understanding of the relative importance of offline groups and isolated interaction on the internet does not match the past decade of far-right violent extremism and terrorism. One thing they note in this paper is that even compared to 10 years ago, teenagers are online twice as much as they Lots used to more. be. So I think, yes. yeah, so I think it used to be 22 hours a week 10 years ago, 44 hours a week as of now. And they point out... This increase in online use means that people are just seeing a lot more of this rhetoric. As I noted on Twitter this morning, when I was looking at my YouTube recommendations this morning, I was being recommended a lot of videos, which were videos about the outrageous nature of colorblind casting in the Rings of Power, or the fact that an African-American actor is playing Ariel in the Little Mermaid reboot. I was tempted to watch one of these videos because I wanted to see how bad the arguments were. But I just knew if I did that, the algorithm would go, oh, also, you like this stuff. We're going to show more. But the fact that the algorithm is trying to push this stuff on me, if you then think of people who might have slightly less control over what they want to watch, so spend a little less time thinking, is this a good idea given what the algorithm does, you can see how spending more time online may well lead to seeing a lot more extremist content than people think they should be. Mm. So yes, they say, uh, they, in that vein, they say, while previous assertions that face-to-face -face interaction was far more important than the internet and uh, radicalizing individuals to violence were likely correct, the nature of the online environment has changed dramatically over recent years. The contemporary internet retains its utility for recruitment and the dissemination of propaganda, but it has a range of new characteristics which enhance and accelerate the radicalization process. And so, as you say, part of that is simply that people are just spending a hell of a lot more time online. Um, the, the rise of uh, video um, communication, the rise of chats, the rise of your discords and your gabs and your telegrams and various other messaging places. There, um, the, the technology has changed and that's changing the, 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 the radicalization dynamic. So continuing to talk about what people have said in the past, um, they say, as Jared Brackman and Alex Levine have contended, a key component of the radicalization process is the impulse to reconcile one's online and offline personas. The gap between online participation and real-world action is a source of discontent and pain, quoting those two. As a result, they write, a select few users will try to live up to their virtual extremist and pro-violent selves in the real world. So in other words, we're talking about your, your, your mass shooters and what have you. Others will not take action themselves, but will chide others for inauthenticity and a failure to act in real life, raising pressure on some individuals. And then, then they get into the stuff that, they, that, we, that we just talked about a minute ago, that, that in contrast, meeting people face-to-face -face can be kind of deflating because compared to their online personas, their real life, they're, 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 they are, what was the quote, awkward, disorganised and uninspiring in real life. Yes, and I think we'll see later on in this paper, there is some very uninspiring things that happened when people finally got to meet up in the forest. Yes, yes it is. Um, and then so they talk about, of course, there are these other other factors that you mentioned before. Um, terrorist acts lead to negative attention, uh, lead to public condemnation of these groups once they become aware of them. And in-person groups are a lot easier to be monitored by the police, by, by law enforcement. So extreme action. Yeah, there's this, there is this weird thing that white nationalist group seem to think that the actors of, say, Anders Breivik or the terrorists are going to immediately lead to the race war. That basically white people are just sitting at their desk itching to kill people, people of colour. And so that when the one event occurs, everyone is going to go grab their gun or their pitchfork and they're going to go out and murdering. And those groups end up being really quite deflated when it turns out that this doesn't happen. Largely what you see or you seal? Largely what you seal. Largely what agree. you see is moral indignation. Or and the the as the Prime Minister of New Zealand said at the time, this is not us. And mm. yet those groups, they just assume that there's going to be an acceleration of violence based upon these one-off events. Mm. Uh, so then it 
this paper then goes on to talk about actions Zealandia, how it formed, what it stands for. We, we sort of all know that. Um, points out they mostly recruit through word of mouth and recommendations. Um, points out that they, after once once sort of the public became aware of them, I think they tried to create a new public image as an as an identitarian rather than extremist movement. So again, yes, whether we're all about you know um, just 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 ha- having a jolly good time. We're, we're about we're about pride. In Western culture, nothing wrong with that. We're nothing wrong with being proud of where you come from, is there? And that sort of business. One slightly worrying thing, I think you mentioned this before. They yes, say it's the old white is right, and that and and that's okay. Mm. Uh, I think I think you referred to this before. They say a sizable proportion of Action Zelandia's membership is comprised of former, in one case, serving armed forces personnel. The former leader and six members of Action Zelandia were previously in the armed forces, and the group believed one member to still be serving at the time of writing. In this regard, Action Zelandia are similar to far-right groups overseas. One Action Zelandia former yes, soldier I believe that's stated, the one who's being investigated. Yes. Former soldier stated, the army attracts nationalists. They make the best soldiers because they're the most motivated. Nationalists are everywhere in the army, which is disturbing, and not just because they use the word comprised improperly. Nationalists are everywhere in the army. Is uh, and that, that's that's it's a bit of a tidbit here, just kind of throw a throwaway point because it isn't actually related directly to the point of this uh, article, but it is something that you kind of feel like you have to mention. Yeah. Yep. So, so th- th- then we get into the guts of it. Then we get into the section online extremism and offline apathy. So they say online in the chat room applications, Element, Discord, and other platforms, the members of Actions Zelandia behave and talk like most other far right white nationalist groups. And a bit later, it is in these spaces that members provoke and incite each other to increasingly extreme racist, misogynistic, and hostile statements. The more radical the posters acted online, the more status within the group they achieved. So they, they observe every, very misogynistic, very homophobic, very racist. No, no big surprise there, pretty much what you'd expect. Uh, now, the interest, and, and, and so here is what I was referring to before, the fact that thing, things changed a little bit. They say... Yet from mid to late 2020, these threats and the apparent escalation towards extremist violence tailed off, and the group has so far not engaged in extremist violence. This de-escalation was driven by several phenomena related to the internal dynamics and external visibility of Action Zealandia as a group. Police investigations and arrest of several members following these online threats created a fear of legal consequences for the leaders and other members. As reports of these violent threats became public, the group faced widespread media attention and public condemnation. The group was an easy target, continuing to maintain a high level of visibility from a website, podcast, and social media accounts, and from its offline propaganda activities. This visibility and the nature of the group made it an obvious target for justified public anger at white nationalism after the Christchurch attacks. So be, be, being a group in real life, uh, an identifiable group, made it much more of a target than anonymous people on the internet. And so there was this real worry that, sort of referring back to the, the, what you talked about before, the reasons why they'd set up a code of conduct and so on, there was this worry that among the groups that, you know, all it would take is, is one of us to do something stupid and really, you know, and, and get the police to crack down on us, and it could destroy the whole movement. So we need to be a bit careful. We need to be a bit strategic about what we do. Otherwise, otherwise we end up threatening the group. And of course, if you're a lone person on the internet, that's not a not a concern. So I think this is, this is where they're sort of saying that being a group that that that, that is has an in person component, and that is a you know a localized uh, to a one country at least makes the uh, ramps down the rhetoric, at least externally, and makes people be a lot more careful and a lot less extreme. Almost if they they almost recognise they live in a society. They mm, almost. almost they almost realise it. The interesting thing from the previous paper was that they said, look, you can't distribute the stuff online or offline. And I think as we no- noted there, that's in part because they were concerned that not every single member was actually working for them. They were concerned that there are leaks about what we're doing getting out. Some of the people online may not actually be in agreement with us. Mm, mm. Uh, so then, it, then they start to talk about what they observed um, in some of these actual real-life in-person meetings, which is, which is when the Schadenfreude ramps up again a little bit, I think. Uh, they say... 
As the group began to meet again in mid-2020 after a COVID-related lockdown, members were unfit, ill-disciplined, and would often not attend physical activities. Many scheduled events were often highly disorganised. Many, such as paintballing on the anniversary of the childish... Uh, childish... Actually, I'm going to stick with that, actually. It's supposed to be Christchurch terrorist attacks, but I, I kind of stand with my original uh, yeah, the misreading there. Childish terrorist attacks is great. Uh, anyway, paintballing on the anniversary of these attacks, charming in and of itself, uh, and bushwalks were cancelled because of a lack of commitment. Several members became frustrated at the hypocrisy and lack of commitment on the part of others for their failure to participate in events or for engaging in the degeneracy the group ostensibly abhorred. When Action Zealandia organised a boxing event... people were turning up to meetings hungover and they're not meant to drink. There was drug use mm. going on, and that was against the code of conduct for young men who join Actions Landia. They need to be pure of mind and pure of body. Mm. And presumably a lot of them had spent a bunch of time sitting on their sofas watching TV and, and chatting on the internet during lockdown rather than, you know, spending the entire time doing press-ups and burpees and drinking power shakes like, like you and I did, I'm sure. Josh, out of curiosity, when was the last time you did a burpee? Um... I've I've never really done the sort of uh, exercise that involved burpees. Done a lot of press-ups, not not really many many burpees, I have to say. Uh, anyway, I think the last time I did a burpee was in form three. Yeah, it's probably high school, I think. Anyway, they say uh, when Action Zealandia organised a boxing event with the small and now largely inactive Walkers Christie in a forest in the central North Island, this presented a prime opportunity to develop the group. The event was intended to build group cohesion, work on self-improvement after lockdown, and to practice fighting for any future clash with anti-fascist forces. One of the authors fought in the event. However, as a display of martial prowess, the event was highly disappointing and hasn't been repeated. Most members were unfit and poor fighters. The member who had discussed establishing the street fighting group Southern Order lost his bout to a junior member. After initially engaging in online discussion of the event, the Auckland chapter leader stopped checking his messages and did not travel to the event. Regardless of the impressiveness of the event, a boxing tournament was more intended to create a paramilitary-style organisation rather than a terrorist cell. So again, it was the face-to-face the, the -face meeting, apart from being uninspiring and, and, and deflating, um, was not the sort of thing that... It wasn't people getting together to, to plan bombing buildings and attacking mosques. It was a, it was a plan to get together and, you know, become be, be, become the Proud Boys, essentially, I think, to, to take to the streets and intimidate and and be prepared to back it up with violence um, if it came to that. And yet it turned out that they were not particularly impressive in person. No. Yes, and indeed, they continue. The deflating character of many events thereby reduced the fervour that had been generated by online extremist rhetoric and disrupted the process of radicalisation. At the same time, occasional face-to-face -face meetings gave many members both a friendship group and a sense that they were part of a movement for which they had done their part. We contend this reduced any drive towards extremist violence. These dynamics have uh, actions Zealandia to position itself as the seed of a mass nationalist movement rather than a terrorist group. Instead of planning a large-scale attack in the manner of Christchurch 2019, the group instead hoped to project, quote, good optics, which would allow greater recruitment and create a larger, more influential white, white nationalist movement. Many sought to widen the Overton window of extremist rhetoric in New Zealand. Like similar groups elsewhere, Action Zealandia sought to educate white New Zealanders on the threats to the white race. Moving away from discussing violence, members instead discussed the creation of a, a quote, whites-only, high-functioning and crime-free commune in rural New Zealand. Good luck with that. Some members talk excitedly of the group as a fascist street-fighting force in the manner of the Nazi brown shirts or the Proud Boys and other militant groups overseas. Members have also discussed infiltrating or influencing political parties. So yes, they see themselves as a movement. They're not, not a terrorist organisation. And we'll be talking about the influencing politics in the bonus episode. We will certainly. Now they rather they, they just as a uh, as, as a final point, um, they have a section a comparison with the Fourth Reich. Now the Fourth Reich, as you'll probably get from their name, is a neo-Nazi organisation, but they're quite different um, from from Action Zealandia. They, they formed in prison, and the Fourth Reich was basically just a criminal gang. Um, they didn't have an agenda. 
they weren't they were they weren't really nationalists at all. They were just using the sort of neo-Nazi imagery, but but when it came to it, were just a gang, and that meant that. They were uh, these people. You know, they met in prison. They they were criminals at the time. They've gone on to commit a lot of sort of criminal, uh, violent, and other criminal acts. But this is because that's what they're about. They're a gang. They say, as it says, um, the violence of members was never seen as an impediment to the group. Indeed, violence was central to the group's reputation and criminal standing. So they sort of gave this as a point of contrast. This is a uh, this is this is this is a different kind of thing to what we're talking about, and and uh, a group where you see a lot more uh, real life violence is one that 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 isn't worried about the sort of things that a group like Action Zealandia is worried about. Now, this section I did feel felt like reviewer B said, but you haven't mentioned another Nazi group that operated in El Toro in the past, the Fourth Reich. Can you say something about that? And they're going, and the kind Fourth of a Reich different really thing. doesn't resemble Zealandia really, yeah. at all. So they just have this little section of, there's mm. a thing called the Fourth Reich. It's a criminal gang. It has a name, which, of course, marks out it as being kind of nutty yes, but really it's kind of not. They're just using a name and engaging in violence. So it did feel like they were satisfying a reviewer. It didn't seem like mm. it was something that if you took it out of the article, the article would lose anything. Not really, no, no. It's an interesting point of difference, but doesn't actually affect the, the points that they're making, really. Uh, and so that brings them to their conclusion. So they, they, they basically re- recap what they've said before, and then finish off by saying, even if extremist groups such as Action Zealandia do not pursue violence themselves, they still pose a grave threat to society. Their open discussion of white nationalism and the threat to the white race and more closed discussion of violence against minorities, journalists, women and academics promotes digital harm and can motivate violent action by others on the periphery of or outside the group. Groups such as Action Zealandia often fantasize about taking advantage of any future ethnic conflict or societal breakdown, and the group's decision to refrain from violence may change in the future as group, political, and social conditions change. Yet for the reasons presented in this article, groups sometimes present a different threat to society to that posed by isolated individuals radicalizing online. While the latter is now the most common pathway to mass casualty terrorism, groups sometimes have grander and more long-term goals. It is their impact impact on democracy, their intimidation of minorities, and effect on intergroup relations, where their greatest impact lies. So again, they're not saying there's no danger here. They're just sort of saying it's it's a different uh, a different kind of concern than than mass shootings and what have you, which, as they say, tend to come out of people who aren't actually members of these groups and who aren't meeting face to face to talk um, about their bullshit. Frankly, so there we go. To two pa- two two I mean the, you know as as you'll have gathered the, the two papers are very similar they're, they're they're both based on the same case study but they're making different points with the data they've gathered any any particular surprises there not particularly I mean it's one of those things where or, or I felt what we I knew thought, a lot yeah. of this coming yes yeah so and I suppose there's the danger because it does seem to confirm my pre-existing suspicions mm. about the way these groups work and there's a worry there that this is just reinforcing my own natural prejudices about online groups online activism and the like I do like how they go at great lengths in both papers to go look even if actions landia is not a good example of a group leading to outward vilest acts. Vilest acts? Vilest acts. Violent acts. They are still engaging in rhetoric, and that rhetoric has the ability to change hearts and minds. And I think that's something we need to be cognizant of, because, I mean, that's also the worry about certain types of conspiracy theories. It doesn't really matter how many people believe unwarranted conspiracy theories. What matters is who is expressing them, because sometimes it's the who's expressing them that then licenses the kind of behaviours that come out of those things. As we've talked about in the past, it seems like belief in conspiracy theories is generally going down, but it does also seem as if there are certain people who are more open to express their conspiracy theories now who weren't expressing those theories openly 10 or 20 years ago. So the rhetoric really does 
matter here. And I like how they, they focus on that at the end. This case study tells us something about a particular group. It doesn't tell us about the danger that the rhetoric proposes. Uh, poses? Yes, poses. Poses. That's yeah. another matter entirely. Mm. I was interested about the... Um... Uh, came up more in your paper than mine. The idea of the the the, the violent rhetoric being cathartic, and and fulfilling a, a, a psychological need, and this idea that oh that's you know it's it's a release valve, so that's why um, they don't go on to do worse things. Because I've heard in 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 other contexts, I've heard there's there's always a bit of tension there. With, with the, there's one argument that yeah they get it out of their system. And so that means they don't go on to do bad things. But then the other side of it is, or is it that by doing it like this, they're not just getting out of their system, they're normalizing it within their own heads and 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 that could make them actually more likely to do that sort of thing down the track. You always hear this argument. I mean, I've heard it when it comes to um, discussions of, of sort of uh, pedophilia sort of relation. Uh, um, contexts where people you, you you sort of hear stories of a a person you know visiting a sex worker and wanting them to dress up like a schoolgirl or something and the per- one person says no that's horrible and gross and then another person says well better that than he goes and finds a real schoolgirl but then the argument to that is or it, it reinforces the idea in his head that having sex with a schoolgirl is actually an okay sort of thing so, so I, I never quite i never quite know what to think when people say no indulging in these very unsavory sorts of things can be a, a positive way of getting it out of their system when there is also the argument that maybe it is actually just strengthening feelings, which could be a bigger problem down the track. But I'm not an expert in, in any of these sorts of things, so I don't know. I'm reminded of a kind of case study from 20 years ago. So there was a problem in some left-wing activist circles two decades ago back home where there had come a tendency to make ironic Jewish jokes. So the idea being, you know, we we all know there is an, an elaborate right-wing conspiracy being led by the Jewish people with their space lasers and the like. So people would just make jokes, oh, you know, probably the Jews are responsible for why the coffee maker isn't working this morning. And these jokes became so commonplace that people were just making crypto anti-Semitic jokes all the time, but they're doing it ironically and that was fine. And then someone pointed out the case of you're making those jokes constantly now. It's gone from being a one-off edgy joke in bad taste to now the entire workplace is just filled with Jewish jokes, Jewish jokes, Jewish jokes. And kind of normalized that discourse and actually just meant that anti-Semitism was creeping into everyday conversations in those groups. So, yeah, the catharsis thing is interesting. It would be probably worth our while to see if there's any literature on whether this kind of cathartic thing actually does what what these authors are claiming here, a release valve, or whether it actually ends up being a kind of reinforcing mechanism. Because, oh, so I'm allowed to say kill all X in this group. Oh, so what else can I say? Positive association. Anyway, that's 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 a side point entirely. So, yeah, interesting to read. Again, I, as you say, I also get a little suspicious any time I read something that confirms what I'd already believed all along. But... You know, they, they were there. They 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 were reporting what they saw. So um, yeah, and I'm definitely not infiltrating a white supremacist group. I mean, no. I've 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 yeah, had, I will, I've, I will I've take enough time for it. Yeah. yeah, I've had enough time infiltrating the group of conspiracy theory theorists who believe that it actually it's rational to believe conspiracy theories as I weave my dastardly plot to undo them piece by piece with my constant publications showing that particular particular particularism is true. It's a very long game, Josh. It's a very long game. Mm, but we've said too much. Uh, so in fact we should probably stop saying things but then go and say other different things in our patron bonus episode so as you have intimated we'll be talking a little bit more about um, a local body candidate who who may not be entirely on the level stuff that's going on at Patreon a bit of good old fashioned satanic panic 
And uh, an update on it's King back Farms. in vogue. Uh, did it ever really go away? One way or another, it feels like. Unfortunately, it's no. Unfortunately, no. no. So, uh, unless you have any final thoughts, I think we can call this episode to a, to a close. I gave up thinking years ago. Yeah, probably for the best. Right-o. Well, then, in that case, um, thank you for being a patron if you're one of our patrons. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. If you're not, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say goodbye. And I'm going to say there's a spin-off to The Golden Girls called The Golden Palace, and frankly, that's fascinating. The podcast's Guide to the Conspiracy stars Josh Addison and myself, Associate Professor M.R.X. Denter. Our show's conspiracy producers are Tom and Philip, plus another mysterious anonymous donor. You can contact Josh and myself at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com, and please do consider joining our Patreon. And remember, keep watching the skis.